Uh, welcome to Lunch Money, your uh, home for uh, your online and social media home for uh, workout special situations and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I am the uh, fund manager at Hermes Capital and I am your Lunch Money host. Today we are coming to you live from the boardroom at ERA Legal. They are our sponsors today. Uh, you too could be a Lunch Money sponsor. All you've got to do is put up your boardroom and uh, put up some Sangers and, and uh, you'll be a sponsor. How about that? That'd be fantastic. Now, I have with me my special guest, Paul Mazzola. Hello, Paul. Dr. Hello, Paul Mazzola. I'm going to introduce you shortly. Um, running a little bit late because there was a five-car prang out the front of my office. There were police, people being face-planted into Botany Road. It was all very exciting, but uh, that's for another time. Listen, when we're talking about what started World War I, people, people talk about the shot that was heard around the world. And, and they say, oh, the, the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo is what started World War I. But, of course, the origins of that conflict can be traced back at least 40 years prior to that, to the Franco-Prussian War, if not earlier. I read a great book on this uh, featuring uh, Bismarck. If you're interested, let me know and I'll let you know what the book was. Um, but the story of World War I can't be told. Uh, absent the stories of the big personalities. Bismarck was one of the big personalities. Churchill was in there. Uh, who else? There was Lloyd George. All That's of those right. guys. Big personalities. Big egos, I would have thought. Um, uh, likewise, some blame the GFC, the global financial crisis, that some of us are old enough to remember, on SPIVs selling bonds backed by high-risk mortgage loans. Um, but our guest today traces, traces the causal patterns back to the American War of Independence. Um, which is quite fascinating. Uh, I did ask Paul when I met him, actually, to, to discuss this, why you didn't go all the way back to the Peloponnesian War, but... Um, we, we did. We, it could be my next It project. could be the next one. We, we could have a chat about that. Um, please welcome Dr. Paul Mazzola. Can we have a big lunch money welcome for, for Dr. Paul? Uh, we do have a live audience. Um, now, Paul, when I first met you, you had a senior role at ANZ uh, Corporate Banking Division, and you turned your back on that world, that, that world of high finance, known for big bonuses, uh, a swanky lifestyle, probably uh, what, what, what stays uh, in corporate banking, what's the saying? Yeah, we'll leave it there. Um, and you left that to, for, for a life in academia. Um, what don't you miss? What I don't uh, miss uh, is the constant pressure um, from, and I guess it emanated from the shareholders for increasingly higher returns. Now that translated to pressure from above, from the, from the CEO, from the board, um, all the way down. And that generated a short-termism of, uh, of thinking whereby results quarter by quarter were the be-all and end-all. In fact, in many banks, if you missed your targets two quarters in a row, um, you're under performance management. That constant pressure, I thought, created dysfunctional behaviours, um, which I also allude to in the book. I borrowed from those days in applying to the US investment banking industry, which also um, dealt with, um, with similar issues. Listen, um, I, I'm interested. The first thing that you said is that you missed the collegiality. But I'm not sure that's entirely consistent with your book. Um, because not everybody in the banking circle, uh, there are personality issues, aren't there? There certainly are. In fact, um, first of all, can I start saying that not all uh, my my research focuses on investment bankers as opposed to bankers. There is a cultural difference, so we need to recognise that first. I was in the 
both industries actually throughout my career. So I was actually in, at the coalface and could differentiate between the behaviours. Not all bankers are bad. We've had a pretty rough trot over the last couple of decades, actually. Um, but it only takes a few, particularly at the very senior level, that can spoil the, um, spoil the reputation of the industry. And uh, uh, you just, just mind holding up your book so that we can see, because we haven't announced the book, of course, but this is uh, Countdown to the Global Financial Crisis, uh, the story or a story of power and greed, which is a very sexy title. Did you come up with that or was that, uh, was that your editor? Actually, no, I came up with it. Um, if that's exactly what it talks about. It peels back the layers of the causes of the global financial crisis. It peels back the layers to the individuals and the decisions that were taken. Um, leading up to the GFC, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, I went back all the way to the American War of Independence to trace the behaviours. Initially, I started, I went back to the immediate pre-GFC period and trying to seek an explanation for the behaviours that were observed. Um, and in doing so, I thought I'd better go back to the previous major financial crisis, which was the Great Depression. And funnily enough, I found very similar patterns of behaviour and sequence of events. So I decided to go all the way back. And um, one of the interesting features was I found similar characters, similar patterns of behaviour, all following in a similar sequence leading up to the various financial crises. I mean, I must say, when, when, I, when I read through, uh, I went on the website and I've had, I've had a look through the contents and I've read some of the pages, what I found interesting was that obviously it's a, it's a very academic book in terms of, uh, you know, it's, I mean, you're a PhD and it, it reads, you know, it's very thoroughly researched and it's got all of those things that, that uh, satisfy those in academia. But I do think that... Um, at first, you know, on first blush, except for the, the, your use of power and greed in the title, you know, you might be, uh, you might pick up that book thinking that it's going to be all about finance and all about, you know, junk bonds and all that sort of stuff. But actually, it's it's about, there's a lot of uh, human nature and, and, and power in that. Listen, let me get back to the script. Um, I, earlier on, we were talking and you, you were uh, in a, a Europe earlier this year visiting the European Parliament. Uh, what, what, what were you doing there? Well, that was, I was very flattered and um, honoured that I was invited to present to a committee of the European Parliament. Europe's, the European Union is going through some significant change. They've recognised that the ethical frameworks governing all the various European institutions, and there are actually quite a number of them, um, have, been, have been dysfunctional and not effective. So they want to undertake a fresh look at how they govern these institutions and the ethics. There's been a number of cases where um, European parliamentarians have been seduced into industry, into the industries that they were regulating. Um, and uh, that's a form of regulatory capture. So would this be, again, without naming names, uh, but would this be a little bit like Julie Bishop going to join uh, Greensill? Or um, uh, we have we have existing you know, other, other politicians going more, to Morgan Stanley and all these precisely. Or, uh, Josh Frydenberg, where did he go? Um, Barillaro's Bar 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 uh, recent yeah. um, uh, fiasco as the trade minister. That's another example. Now I'm yeah. not saying they're all. We're not picking on on. No, yeah. no, no, and I'm, I'm about to say they're not all. Um, 
bad practices because they may well be the best person for the position. Uh, but generally speaking, we do see evidence that uh, from uh, taking those positions, there are clear and obvious um, exploitation of the power that's afforded to those individuals, and often it's monetary. I listened to uh, Scott Adams, the famous cartoonist of Dilbert, and he says that uh, if, if there's a reward and a way of committing the crime, the crimes happen. So if you can think of a crime where there's a reward and a way of it being executed, it's happened. Um, and so I wonder if there's a bit of that. Listen, having a look at, at, at some of the highlights of your book, um, I, 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 it occurs to me, a lot of people say that an MBA is very useful if you want to be successful in finance. And you go, you do an MBA and there's lots of people that are aspiring uh, merchant bankers and investment bankers, merchant bankers showing my age there. Um, but does it also help to be a psychopath? Many would say yes. I hope I'm not a psychopath. But, you know, um, it's interesting you ask that question because there's actually been a couple of academic studies on this although uh, not focusing on psych psychopathy, but on um, narcissism. In fact, a paper, a Harvard paper of 2021 um, are, uh, identified 20% of American CEOs as qualifying under the narcissistic tag. Now that compares to 5% of the population. So, so it's, hey, over well, three, well, well, it's over three times the number. Wow. Um, Would anyone in this room concur that there are psychopaths uh, operating the financial services? To get to the top. Yeah, okay. Another paper uh, in 2020 then looked at whether this also applies to the finance industry and in what degree. And because narcissists are very much motivated by self-interest, money is used as a tool for power, and given that you were saying that um, education is important to get into investment banking, it's because it's very selective. It's very hard to get into and because the rewards are the greatest of most industries. So money is very important to those who want to get into the industry. Once they're in the industry, they will use that money. If they're, if they're narcissists, they'll use it and manipulate others by using it. The reward systems, their own personal self-interest, all that comes into play. And well, that goes to some way in explaining those uh, differences in the percentages of the population that are uh, narcissists. You do, yeah, I mean, you do specifically talk about psychopathy, if, if, if that's the correct pronunciation in, in the book. So that's interesting. I mean, I know that when, when I was at your book launch, I was very privileged to be there and thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I asked you, well, I said to you, and I, I don't know if there's a good way of saying this without it being misconstrued by people, but Gordon Gecko, you know, said greed is good. Um, and you you don't think greed is good. On the other hand, you know, that, what, that, what that means is that people are obviously going to have behaviours that have, have the rewards. If you want people to exhibit certain behaviours, then you, then, you, then you set the reward structure uh, as such, but but you, you would you would contest with Gordon Greco that greed is good. Well, I think in in that era, and that was the nineteen eighties, um, it was a mantra, it was an accepted practice, but at all costs. So the notion that greed is good at all costs is what I object to, mm. because I think there is a duty to public benefit, 
Um, and that's where regulators actually step in, is to, is to hone in those dysfunctional behaviours to ensure there is no harm to the public benefit. You know, when I, when I first met an investment banker, um, I, I was, uh, it was a social setting and there was two of them there, they were friends of a friend, and they used this expression, um, tearing the face off a client. Have you heard that? I've heard it in other guises. Yeah, and it basically means, and I'm thinking the client is your client, and you guys are using the expression like tearing the face off to mean that they were absolutely gouging them on fees and, and God knows what. Um, I mean, maybe it's not used these days, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going back a bit. That is right. I mean, I yeah. was around in the 80s like you were, yeah. Nick, and yeah. we saw a lot of that. In fact, that was one of the main reasons I left the industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't stomach what I was seeing. In fact, there were, ex there were sayings that if you were shaking hands with someone from Lehman Brothers, Check your fingers. Yeah, yeah you might have yeah, lost a few. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's 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 encouraging to know that integrity is now even um, included in some regulations. In fact, the bear regulations that APRA oversees actually stipulates that and compels ADIs and executives, senior executives. Um, that are governed by that regulation to act with integrity. We saw that coming out of the uh, Haynes Royal Commission. So many examples after examples where integrity was uh, breached or the notion of, the, of, of that. So uh, that's what we probably were missing a little bit in the 1980s. To get to understand that in the book, I, I had to explore certain um, theories to help me understand why that occurred. Well, one useful theory was what we call new institutional theory, and that's and that was a theory um, uh, put out by a couple of very intelligent academics, DiMaggio and Powell, back in the early 80s. And new institutional theory talks about pressures, pressures to conform. One particular strand called normative isomorphism or normative pressure talks about um, how individuals within an industry or within a field um, can normalise certain behaviour because they see it all around them. And, and there are all kinds of um, communication amongst that group that, that makes even um, that kind of behaviour that you've just described seem normal. So, okay. um, Look, I might have just ask you to pass the book there for a moment. Uh, for those, uh, anybody who's just joined us, I'm here with Dr. Paul Mazzola and we're uh, discussing his, uh, his new book, um, uh, Countdown to the Global Financial Crisis, A Story of Power and Greed. Uh, we are coming to you live from uh, ERA's boardroom, ERA Legal's boardroom. They're uh, our sponsor for today and uh, you too could be a sponsor of uh, Lunch Money um, if you want to uh, put your boardroom up and put on some sangers for, uh, for, the, for the guests. Um, so, Paul, okay, so the lust for power and greed, as we said before, they're kind of inevitable wherever you go. Um, my, next, my, my written question here is what surprised you or even shocked you about human nature and investment banking? We've kind of talked a little bit about that. I'm just interested, maybe instead I could ask you to join the dots between George Washington and the War of Independence and the GFC. Yeah, well, as I said, I traced the patterns of behaviour all the way back to the American War of Independence. And I was looking for the very first investment banker 
in, in the United States. I came across this character called Haynes Solomon. He was quite a, uh, a character, came from Europe, um, trapped, spoke various languages, quite, quite an intellect, and was a supporter of the independent movement um, against the British. Um, and noticed that uh, to win any war, one needs money, one needs finance. And because of his network and connections, and again, I'll come back to that word network, because one of the key attributes of an investment banker is having a good network for distribution. So he had a fantastic network and was able to raise money through the issuance of what we would know today as capital markets instruments. Um, and moreover, it was quite a wise guy who was able to use his connections. Again, another attribute of wise an investment guy and connections. It sounds like uh... Uh, something <laughs> yeah. like the yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. one of the things he did was he granted interest-free loans to a great number of congressmen. In, in those days, it wasn't a proper congress. It was called the Continental Congress. And in return, sought some favours. One of the favours, I guess you could call it, was to almost usurp the authority of the Treasury Secretary. So he just stepped in and raised the funds that the, the new government needed. To and prosecute of course, the war. To prosecute the war and also to fund the post-war period. So that continued for quite a while. In the meantime, running his own investment banking activities and taking a clip on all the transactions. So there's a smart investment banker. The... Uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, Cicero said that the sinews of war are endless money. That's right. interesting. That's, that's, that's right. So you, you asked the question, how do you relate that yeah. to the GFC? We saw a lot of examples of power and influence uh, impacting on politicians and regulators in the lead up to the GFC. I, I, there are a number of, and I plot these in the book, a number of regu regulations that were... Uh, enacted previously following previous regulations that were repealed in the period prior to the GFC, solely due to the American system of lobbying and the power of the institutions that drove that lobbying. Now, somewhere along the line, I'm sure it's in your book, and I know that Peabody is mentioned in your book, uh, but Peabody had something to do with funding World War One, was it, or, or maybe... There were most most wars, in fact, in the U.S. Yeah. were funded by investment bankers of yeah, Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. In fact, New York was the centre from the early days. And in 1912, there was the Pujo Committee, uh, which which was constituted to look at what they called the money trusts in the U.S. And these are the the very wealthy bankers in New York, and they were concentrated. Uh, the, the power was all concentrated within a very short uh, area. And the outcome of the Pujo Committee was the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. So there was an acknowledgement that there's the, the monetary policy was actually being conducted privately by the, the money trusts. Well, I'm part of the end the Fed movement. And if we've got time, <laughs> we might come back to talking about ending the Fed. But um, uh, look... When studying the history of warfare, uh, often we hear the refrain, uh, the generals were fighting the last war. Uh, you know, classically in World War One, you, you know, they were using battle formations uh, that were quite successful against the muskets uh, and cavalry of Napoleon. 
Uh, but of course, the Germans have mechanized warfare with, with uh, all sorts of machine guns and what have you. Um, are our regulators today uh, fighting the last war? Um, you know, how well equipped are we for the challenges today? There's high interest rates now. We've got inflation. We've got all sorts of new technologies. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got dele we're delegating credit decisions to algorithms in, in many senses. Uh, you know, when I went, well, when you and I started in banking and I started down at Wales House and downstairs, there was corporate banking. And uh, those, those people made their own decisions. Uh, but, of course, then it was centralised and even the branch manager can't make a decision apart from... Uh, you know, I, I don't know what, you know what brand of coffee I suppose to bring in. That's right. So, 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 you know, are we equipped? Um, well, back first of all, a couple of those comments. Yes, there was a world of gentlemen bankers back a few decades ago, and technology and innovation has made a, a, a big difference to decision making. So that's we'll park that aside for, uh, for the moment. Um, but well, just if I could say, there was a 333 rule. Do you know the 333 rule? Interest rates 3%, uh, golf handicap 3%, and I think, yeah, the 3pm knockoff or something was, uh, was uh, oh, okay. yeah, that's a long way back. I would but, love uh, those days again. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That's right. So um, one of the things I trace in the book, and, the, and which really caused an, a massive expansion of the US investment banking industry, was the simple corporatization. Early on, up until the early 1900s, most investment banks were partnerships. And once they started to corporatize, things like tacit skill and reputation were devalued because an executive or a senior executive within an investment bank could hide behind the corporate veil. And it was all about corporate profits, not partnership profits. A partner's reputation was what sustained the firm. And so the individual was held accountable. Now, they can hide behind that corporate veil, and it's the corporation, the separate legal person, the separate legal entity that is responsible for the decisions and suitable for the decisions made by the senior executives in these investment banks. So that evolved to then... Um, uh, the, the internal management constructing their reward systems and their reward systems obviously were driven by self-interest and that's why you hear about the $50 million bonuses and so on. That would never have happened under a partnership in the old days because it was for the greater good of the partners and the several liability um, and joint and several liability that um, they had in mind in undertaking their business practices. That's very interesting, yeah, because I, I know the structure you're talking about. I mean, some hedge funds operate on those structures to mm -hmm. some extent mm -hmm. um, where there is partnership uh, and liability. Um, we've just had a couple of questions here from the floor, so let me, uh, let me uh, read one of them to you. Has crypto got the potential to override all of these controls and outsource monetary policy to corporations to go outside is, the... That is a very good question. In fact, I've, I've written a little bit about this. Um, one of the biggest threats to central banks around the world is the emergence of um, cryptocurrency. The crypto market is quite a diverse market, so let's not confuse the various segments of that market, but the currency side of the market, which is coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum, etc., um, can destabilise um, the way governments um, manage their economies through the exercise of monetary policy through their central banks. 
um, because monetary control of a country's currency, of a country's legal tender is essential to manage monetary policy because monetary policy is all about either injecting or taking out cash from the economic system. And if, if money is in a different form, so it, which, it, which is in itself decentralised like these cryptocurrencies are, there is no country backing a cryptocurrency, it's totally decentralised, um, then there, and if that uh, gains a majority of the, of the transactional flow within an economy, then the hands of central bankers are tied. So this is the danger imposed by cryptocurrencies. I, one of the early responses to this is I can see that many of the governments are establishing their own digital currencies as a competitor to other currencies, but they're only competing against stable coins, not the volatile Bitcoin. So again, so it's a very complex. Coins. It's yeah. a very complex market. Well, Warren Buffett calls it rat poison, doesn't he? There, there was a stable coin that, that kind of was not so stable Called recently. Called Terra. And so there's a lot. There's a real push for regulation around that right now. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is a fascinating uh, it is a fascinating area. Um, so just a reminder again that I'm here with Dr. Paul Mazzoli. We're talking We're talking about uh, his book Countdown to the Global Financial Crisis, um, and you're live on Lunch Money, and we're here sponsored today by ERA, and you are welcome to sponsor us if you have a vacant boardroom and, uh, and a plate of sandwiches. We'll come and do one live with you. Um, I've got another question. Oh, just a reminder too that uh, if you are watching, you are of course uh, via YouTube, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Uh, you're able to pop us a question, and uh, we will gladly um, gladly put it to Dr. Paul. Uh, now, you. I've got a, this is uh, partly written in English. This question. I think we've got a. I think we've got a doctor in the audience. Um, you say bankers have uh, institutional conformity but are not the government institutions also uh, along for the ride until something goes wrong? Does that make sense, that question? Hang on. That is a good if, question. If, if, if um, you know what, uh, if you can see these patterns, why can't we legislate uh, before rather than after? That's interesting. So, well, know. this is something, as I said, I went, when I traced back to the history of financial crises, one of the patterns that I was referring to was the pattern that regulation often follows crises. Times come, good times come back, economies flourish, and what happens? The regulators, the politicians who are responsible for legislation um, in their pursuit of popularity tend, especially if they're on the right side and want to garner support from the business community, and which includes the finance community, have a tendency to repeal restrictive regulations. Now, we've seen this time and time again. Let's look at the Great Depression and the Glass-Steagall Act that was, that was brought in in 1933. It took 70 years for that, uh, for that um, piece of regulation that prevented banks and investment banks from uh, co-forming into one entity. So a, a traditional bank would then undertake much riskier business that an investment bank would undertake. It took um, 70 years for that to be repealed back in 1999. I trace that as one of the key um, factors leading into the GFC. 
Now, what happened after the GFC in 2010? So, what was Glass-Steagall? Glass-Steagall was the, was the regulation that um, prevented banks merging with investment banks because banks are sacrosanct. They hold deposits of uh, mums and dads. The last thing a government wants was a, is for a bank to go bankrupt. Um, but if they were to merge with an investment bank, they actually increase the risk profile of, of the combined institution. And that's what caused, that, that contributed to the Great Depression when those, uh, those merged entities failed. That was repealed in 1999 with the Graham-Leach-Bliley uh, Act, um, and um, which, which we could see this coming. That meant that banks like Citibank could now undertake investment banking activities and risk up their business. What happened after the GFC? We had a quite a, a good fra a regulatory framework called the Dodd-Frank Act. Now it took seven years for Trump to repeal a major portion of the Dodd-Frank Act up over two separate pieces of regulation that repealed um, uh, those essential provisions that required banks to be stress-tested to report on certain risks. That repeal still exists. So the lesson that I learned, and in answering that question, what I fear is this pendulum effect, this shifting nature of power between industry, between the finance industry, and between legislators. And this shifts every, after every crisis and before every crisis. So... Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, when I started in... I started at, uh, at Westpac and then I worked at AGC. And of course, prior to deregulation in Australia, you know, Paul Keating's uh, great deregulation uh, back in the early 80s. 84, uh, 85. Yeah, I mean, uh, banks weren't allowed to own leasing companies, for example. So you didn't get your equipment finance from Westpac. You got your equipment. And that's why they owned these... Uh, uh, these other well, they had shares in these other companies, but they didn't, you know, they didn't own them. So, so um, was that a hangover from uh, from this uh, Steagall type? Well, that the, the Glass Steagall Act um, applied only to the US, US yeah. jurisdiction. I just wonder whether or not it influenced. But that the notion, the notion of banks undertaking non-banking business has long been a a, a, con, a, a contentious issue. And because of the risk that it brings on the balance sheet of banks. Now, my thought bubble earlier, which I forgot, but now I remember because I've written it down. When you were talking about the cryptocurrency, I was, I was thinking about gold because I, I, I always wonder why not gold's better on the. And are you familiar with the Wizard of Oz as an allegory? No. No. Yeah, well, Oz, O Z, if I write it like that, you suddenly realize that it's ounce. And uh, it's all about, uh, you know, fiat currency and, uh, the, you know, the yellow brick road. And the Wizard of Oz was like Wall Street conjuring up all of this uh, sort of fake money. Uh, if you go, if you Google sort of uh, Wizard of Oz as allegory, uh, it is quite fascinating. Um, so that, that, as I say, that was just a thought bubble. And my apologies for that. But I had to get it out. Very uh, interesting. It is. Oh, yeah. it, is, it is quite fascinating when you think of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtains. I remember that uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, I would recommend to you. A lot of people would, would, would sort of wince when I say that, but uh, Ron Paul wrote a book called The Case for Gold, and uh, he talks about that. But um, uh, now, look, you talk about regulation. Now, I've got a bit of a controversial question here. Why do we need so much regulation? Would we not be better off if banks were allowed to fail? Um, you know, if you had competition, if banks were competing for deposits, 
Uh, and the competition wasn't about interest rates so much, but about sound management and a track record. Uh, wouldn't that be a better way of making sure that banks behave themselves? I mean, if people thought that a bank could fail, they, they would think twice about who they where they stick their savings. And and if, I mean, I personally think that banks should have been allowed to fail in the GFC. And I think it was a big moral, uh, big, you know, there is the moral hazard, obviously. But if more banks had been allowed to fail, then maybe, um, you know, maybe we wouldn't have had the crazy lending and, and all that. You would say, obviously, you know, consumers need protection and uh, and all that sort of stuff, which is a counter argument. But but why why not have less regulation and allow failures? In the, in, and, then, and then it would become part of our culture that banks can fail and so you need to do your homework get the recommendations maybe research firms could could you know uh, provide ratings and that sort of thing nick you're quite right in that this is a very controversial issue in fact it, it, it occupies a lot of uh academics time uh in our research and what i can say to you is that i think it's dangerous to go to one extreme or the other obviously over regulation affects efficiency market efficiency and profitability of banks. We want banks to survive. We want banks to strive because they're an essential component of any economy. On the other hand, there's what we call the public interest. Mums and dads aren't equipped to understand and analyse financial statements of complex organisations. It's hard to find an organisation more complex than a bank with all the various divisions with all the various business operations, including from treasury, dealing, derivatives and so forth, corporate lending and so on. So given that inability to understand the risks that they're, that they're confronted with when they deposit their hard-earned savings into a bank, protection of that consumer is vital. The last thing a politician wants is for a consumer um, to go bankrupt, given that there was a lack of regulation over the banks which they rely upon. So politics comes into play as well. I, I guess a corollary of if you're going to guarantee deposits, well, then, then a, a, just a world of regulation comes with it, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, and, and guaranteeing deposits is dangerous. We did that immediately after the GFC, but yeah. that was a temporary, uh, a temporary measure. Well, it saved. I mean, look, I, I don't want to name names, but there are certain banks That's that right. it saved. That's right. Uh, and... There was one bank in particular. I mean, I, I you know I remember on the Saturday mornings on the sideline watching the kids play sport. There was uh, one guy and he was very senior in one of these banks, and he was you know they were just gone. He kept saying every weekend, "We're gone, we're gone, we're gone." They got the bank guarantee, and then they went on the warpath, acquiring all of these other financial uh, institutions and assets, you know, loan books and what have you, because all of a sudden uh, they were able to raise the capital. Uh, and there were these other little institutions that weren't part, that weren't guaranteed, you know, by, they weren't part of the banking system. They couldn't raise capital. They had runs on them. I remember there was one called Bigi Finance. Um, and, uh, you know, so then because of that intervention, uh, there was a distortion, if you like, because these other finance companies should have survived, really. There shouldn't have been a run on them. But because the banks were being guaranteed and some, you know, not only does it create an unlevel playing field and, I, uh, and a disproportionality, in the market between ADIs and non-ADIs, um, it also creates what you alluded to earlier, which is moral hazard. If a bank CEO knows that the deposits are guaranteed, that all his funding is guaranteed, um, that creates an environment whereby the CEO may make riskier decisions knowing that he or she will be bailed out. Mm. That moral hazard is very dangerous. Mm. That's why 
The, All care and no the, responsibility. That's right. That's why the bank the government guarantees over our deposits uh, in the early period post GFC was temporary and wound and gradually wound down. That was effective and 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 often cited as one of the key uh, components that allowed. Australia to avoid a recession, one of the few countries to avoid a recession. Um, well, yeah, we, again, we, we, I mean, obviously, the balance, Australia's balance sheet was in pretty good shape coming into that as well. Um, and, and the regular, yeah, you know, we had good regulation, but, but um, I, I just wonder now, again, when I started uh, at AGC way back when, um, you know, back when Moses was playing. Uh, fullback for, for whatever, whatever that saying goes. Um, I started in collections and, uh, you know, chasing bad loans and late loans. And, 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 the, and the theory was that you, everyone starts in collections so you know what a bad loan looks like, you know what it is to have to chase money, you know all the things can go wrong. And then, and then later, you know, you go through that process and you get, you know, promoted and go through that process and then you become you get on the desk writing loans. But you don't get on the desk writing loans until you've been on that other side of chasing arrears and, and workouts and all that sort of thing. And that culture, I mean, that culture completely went, even in the 90s, let alone, you know, I started in the 80s. You know, these days, you know, you, you see some of these fintech startup and you look on the, you know, you look up the people, none of them have got finance background. Oh, I mean, no, sorry, I'm, I'm generalising there. But some of these, you look at them and you say, well, this person's a marketing person and this person's come out of, you know, some other industry. A lot of IT people. And they haven't had that that um, that experience. I mean, that worries me a little bit. I mean, what it worries me too. In fact, um, I, I think if you do a survey of a lot of financial institutions, not just here in Australia, but all around the world, a lot of CEOs just have sales backgrounds. Mm. It's all about selling. It's all about selling mortgage product. It's all about selling um, other financial products. And then the cross-sell that goes with that, that augments the, the, the organisation's profit. So that's dangerous. And I think there's no better training from the, the one you had is to see companies go bad and deal with bad credits to hone in your credit judgment because uh, that's, as you say, a lot of that's missing these days. Now, look, we, uh, we, we are kind of going a little bit over time, but it's such an interesting uh, discussion. I don't really care. We're going to keep going. But, look, you did send me some slides, so I think by in fairness. So there's, there's the book again, of course. Uh, I just thought we didn't. Who's that guy? Ah, the founder of Lehman Brothers, one of the three brothers. He was the eldest who first came to America. And um, I thought this would be an interesting slide, and we'll contrast that with another one in a minute. Uh, he came from a, uh, a merchant background. He came from Germany. Well, in fact, Bavaria, because Germany hadn't been unified at that point in time. And When, when, when was this? Uh, this is back in the early to mid 1800s. Right. And then um, uh, he started off in Alabama as a cotton trader. This is not dissimilar from a lot, a lot of other early investment banks. You think of so many names like Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. Um, they came from similar backgrounds, from trading backgrounds, for example, the Lehman's father was uh, a, a cattle merchant and also a merchant trader in, back in Bavaria. And when um, uh, his name's actually Hayam Lehman, he changed his name to Henry when he 
came to America to assimilate into the culture. He was Kids pretty, pretty smart. He had two things working against him in the American system. One, he was Jewish, and two, uh, he was foreign. So to get business going and to assimilate, he changed his name and then realised that by accumulating uh, uh, stores of cotton, he could have an impact on the price of the local price of cotton. Remember, we didn't have the communications mm. that we yeah. have now. Yeah. So a lot of the pricing, the market was... Um, well, cotton was, was hard currency, though. Back, I mean, if you look at the fact, history of the right. Civil War, I you're mean, quite right. uh, you know, uh, you know, the South there was cotton, and I won't go into all of it, but that was they presumed that they'd be able to keep selling their cotton to Europe. Uh, 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 but, but I mean, it is. Well, he would currency. sell his merchandise, yeah, and and the payment. A lot of the payment was in cotton, yeah, and that's yeah, how we accumulated yeah, yeah, cotton, built yeah. built silos and so forth. Yeah. A lot of the securitization that we see today is based on the principles that he founded on on accumulating, pooling, pooling um, stock. Cotton, in cotton that case, receipts. of cotton, and then he would sell share ownerships into, uh, in, into those stockpiles. Wow. So there's your first securitisation. All right. Uh, again, uh, Ron Paul's uh, case for gold talks about the origins of money. He doesn't talk about uh, securitising cotton, but uh, maybe, maybe he should uh, revisit that. Now, who's this chap? Isn't that an interesting picture? It says a lot. You know, this is Richard Fool, the last Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Lehman Brothers. Um, his nickname in the office was the Gorilla, and I guess you look at this picture and you can understand why. Um, came from the trading division of the firm, fought hard to become CEO, um, and ruled the firm with an iron fist. And when things were tough, neglected all the wise advice that was given to him by his leadership team. So he, he was one that really sourced, managed, and manipulated power and then used it. So uh, that's why my book talks a lot about power. All right, now we'll come back to your other slide, but we do have a comment here, and if I blow my screen up, I'll be able to read it. Uh, are restricted ADIs sufficient to reignite sound lending uh, or banks that do not deal in derivatives exotics? Yeah, there's a classification of ADIs that are called restricted ADIs. That right. means they can't undertake every activity that a full, like, fully licensed ADI does. Because remember, banks were tradition, traditionally intermediaries between borrowers and savers. It's quite a simple business in that yeah. regard. Yeah. Once you start adding on all these other activities, trading, uh, warehousing, securitizing and so on, you're raising the risk profile of the institution. So that's quite a relevant question. Do well, I mean, we, well, interesting, we, I mean, our, my business, I mean, Hermes, I mean, we're a, we're a fund and uh, I guess we're like, an, you know, what banks used to be. We've got a pool of, pool of investors, we pool the money and we lend it out. I mean, that's right. it's as simple as that. And we're, we're, we're monitored by ASIC, obviously, we're, we're licensed by ASIC, but... Uh, and the skill there is not to lose it. So credit judgment. That's the first rule. Credit judgment is so important. And yeah. you, earlier you said about the uh, innovation and technology overriding old practices, and the best at innovating are the investment bankers. They brought they brought us VAR value at risk models. They brought us the credit metrics models that are numerical models that measure credit risk. 
In other words, deferring human judgment to computer models to rank risks uh, for decision making. Most sensible banks will use that as a number as one of a number of tools in in making decisions. But there are segments within banks that solely rely on, for example, credit scoring in their decision making uh, process. Okay, I'd, I'd just like to thank that LinkedIn user. For some reason, your name hasn't come up, so I can't thank you personally. Uh, there is a there is a glitch in there that I, I don't fully understand. But thank you very much for your question. Now, I think Paul had given me one more slide. Oh no, no, he hadn't. I'd given me one more slide. I just thought this was interesting because it was in the paper today. Um, this story of Bill Pappas and Forum, uh, it is a fascinating story that, that, that Westpac and uh, a bunch of other lenders are, are in all sorts because uh, he was basically selling them loans that, that didn't really exist. I think the story goes that one of one of his borrowers was a big corporate and they've tried, you know how it works in the, in the corporates, they've, that particular borrower tried to get some money off the bank for whatever it was, some legitimate purpose. And they said, well, we're terribly sorry, you're over your limit. And then uh, the borrower said, what the hell are you talking about? And they said, well, you've got all this other stuff over here. And it turned out the other stuff was a bunch of fake loans. Uh, this but what was interesting was that, that uh, Westpac, I think, had acquired its relationship and exposure initially because they acquired uh, capital finance, which I think is where I could be. Uh, this is all in this article here uh, that was in today's Australian. Um, but it, it's amazing how... You know, I've been around for a long time. We, these stories happen again and again and again. I mean, does anybody ever learn? I mean, you were talking about, well, you'll tell us a little bit about um, Friedrich. Uh, Friedrichson. Yeah. And then there was another one called Tonal. Do you remember Tonal? No, but I do remember the uh, the Safety Council of right. Australia. Well, tell us about this that. is almost a facsimile of that. This is identical circumstances. It, with the Safety Council, yeah, Friedrichs, the Safety Council of Australia, the National Safety Council of Australia uh, case. Um, so just give the, us the, 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 CEO, the sketch of that. The CEO faked invoices, sent those invoices to the bank for an asset finance um, transaction. In other words, raising money uh, on the basis that these were the money, the loans were secured by assets, real assets. Often the assets were safety equipment because that was the business of the National Safety Council. Um, the assets never existed. These were fake invoices. I think there were some and the assets. Banks, there were some. But, but I, I hear that, the, that sometimes the, the banks would go out to inspect them and they'd go to one site and there'd be a few trucks or whatever and they'd inspect them and he'd say, listen, let's go and have some lunch and then we'll go to the other site and inspect the other trucks. Of course, meanwhile, those trucks were then driven to... Uh, Not only that, but he would uh, invite different banks to inspect the same asset. So he was doubling up yeah. on, 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 on that. So um, uh, that is almost an identical case. So what have we learned? This was in the mid-'80s from memory, uh, mid to late-'80s, actually. I think 88, 89, something like that. Um, what have we learned? One of the problems I've witnessed in our banking industry, we lose corporate history. We get rid of very good credit managers. Mm. If, if there was a retrenchment program, it was these elder credit guys that would be retrenched first. Uh, and and the newer, um, newer generation of credit uh, decision makers would, would come in without the corporate history. Now, um, Banks are renowned for making the same mistakes. Well, let me make one point. Firstly, just a reminder that I'm talking with uh, Dr. Paul Mazzola. We're talking about his book, 
here, um, countdown to the global financial crisis, a story of power and greed, which is very sexy. Um, and just further to that point, you know, you talk about corporate memory. I, I, I you know, I, I've got a lot of uh, friends who are commercial finance brokers, and they have their clients for, you know, some of them have clients for 20 and 30 years. You know, but even if they've had their client for 10 years, I often say to them, I mean, the broker has the corporate memory of that client. You know, because they leased a car for them 10 years ago and then they may have done the mortgage nine years ago and a whole bunch of manufacturing equipment and trucks. And they know the file. They know that seven years ago something happened and, you know, they made red boxes instead of blue boxes and so their sales declined. But then they bought this other and they've got all this memory. The bank doesn't have that. All the bank has, because the bank manager chops and changes. And then there isn't even bank managers anymore. Um that's I mean. and that and that dovetails into what I was saying earlier. Had that a lot of the credit decisioning these days is process driven, uh, we, often with the help of technology. So the human element, the judgment, um, falls away. What would you have done differently? <coughs> I would have gone out there and and observed the asset, kicked the tires, so to speak, uh, and to know that there was a real asset there securing the loan. That's just a common practice that was done mm. in the old days. Well, this is one of the problems with this uh, this Pappas matter was that, uh, that they were just selling paper, you know, sell, writing, you know, selling loans, uh, and no one was checking. You know, I mean, it's just, the, oh, well, I don't know exactly what happened, but obviously someone wasn't checking. Um, I mean, certainly in my business, there's a simple verification process. You make, so make sure that the piece of paper you're buying is legit. Because if it ain't legit, it's not. It's not going to get paid. Um, so, so there's that. I mean, one of the funny things I remember about John Friedrich and this National Safety Council that you were talking about. Um, did you listen to Roy and HG at the time? Well, he went missing. That's right. Uh, he went missing. Uh, this guy he was on the run. He's owing God knows how much money. And um, Roy and HG used to have the Saturday afternoon sports program, and they and and they made this announcement: if you're at the footy. Just turn next to the guy next to you and say, are you John Friedrich? And they, they were happy to have this national thing. It was hilarious, you know, to, to, to try and find him. Listen, um, we're going to wrap up. Uh, any sort of closing comments, Bob? Look, I might just close with a saying by a famous philosopher, George Santayana, in 1905, who said that for those of us who um, fail to remember the errors of the past, we're destined to repeat them in the future. Okay. That's true. That is true. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. If we could uh, give Paul a thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for uh, for joining us. We're going to be doing this live again next week from a restaurant, so that's going to be a lot of fun as well. Hopefully uh, there won't be a, uh, a pile-up of five cars and police and, and crooks out the front of my office that time, and I'll get here a little bit sooner to be able to set up. Thanks for watching, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Cheers.